Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may recognize my voice or my face from hosting Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast where for five plus years, nearly 300 episodes, we've been privileged to interview some of the world's most profound entrepreneurs, researchers, best-selling authors, business titans, athletes, celebrities, or in some cases, people who may not have had a common household name, but did something especially interesting, survived a trauma, lived to tell about it. And from those experiences, we realized that it wasn't always the biggest celebrity that had the most downloads, the most listens, the most likes, the most reviews. It was people like you and I, like today's guests, that actually had a remarkable but somewhat relatable career. And so we spun off this new podcast where each week we interview people from different walks of life who all have one thing in common, and that is they're in the C-suite. Sometimes their titles are different, but today we have Dave Leninger. He is the co-founder of Remax, one of the most world-renowned residential real estate firms in the world. He and his wife, Gail, co-founded this company decades ago. My sense is it's broader than just residential real estate. We'll talk about that today with Dave, who is joining us from his home in Denver, Colorado. Dave, welcome to C-Suite. Well, thank you very much. Dave, I think sometimes the best interviews we have on this podcast are not just the CEO of a Fortune 50, although those are always riveting and captivating, it's the honor of interviewing people like yourselves that have had a multi-decade journey as an entrepreneur. You perhaps now are you know, uh, the leader of what is a global public company. And so I'd love to just maybe rewind a couple of decades. And I'd like you to maybe reorient to our listeners and viewers the journey of founding Remax with your wife, because no doubt there are some great entrepreneurial lessons, some leadership lessons as you pivoted from a member of our armed forces, thank you for your service, sir, to now becoming not just the leader of this household name company, but a philanthropist with your wife. Uh, maybe revisit the journey in a few minutes and tell us along the way some of the decisions you made that others could easily replicate in their own careers. Well, <clears throat> like uh, many founders, uh, we were undercapitalized. Uh, we had a dream of where we could be. Uh, but often there are many obstacles to achieving that first level of success. Um, I knew that I had good sale, sales skills. Uh, I could recruit. I could train. Uh, but that was the uh, limit that I had. Uh, I was looking for an administrative vice president that had a college background in management, leadership, or marketing. Uh, I interviewed 27 women. I uh, said no to 27. Gail was the 28th that I interviewed, and she had just moved from St. Louis to Denver. <clears throat> so uh, right off the bat, I knew this is the person that could run the real estate companies. The uh, whole idea behind a her position was to find a way to lease offices, buy the furniture, hire the administrative staff, and manage the organization while well, I did the sales process. Uh, that would, uh, in the future, prove to be uh, an outstanding combination. Uh, we did not become romantically involved until about 10 years later and got married the year following that. And so 
even though we were not married as partners, uh, our partnership worked perfectly. Differentiation. When I think of residential real estate, I think less about the name of the agency and more the talent, the character, the credibility, the competence of the agent. In the last eight years, my wife Stephanie and I have had 10 transactions, buying and selling homes, buying and selling lots. And they've all been between two agents. You know, one of them was with Sotheby's and went to, you know, I don't know what it was, Keller Williams or Remax. They've moved around based on, you know, leadership or office culture, or commission schedule, whatever it was. But at the end of the day, our transactions have been based on the relationship and the competency, the follow-up, the network, the service of the individual agent. How do you as the founder of one of the world's most reputable real estate firms differentiate the brand of your agency while corralling tens of thousands of agents, some who come and go to make sure that someone does pick Remax as opposed to Keller Williams or, or some other, you know, Hathaway, whatever it is. You know, in the real estate industry as in many sales industries, 20% of the agents do 80% of the business. Uh, we're in a organization, National Association of Realtors, 1,500,000 realtors, and yet you've got about 250 or 300,000 are doing 80% of the transactions. It's a relationship business. Uh, as a beginning salesperson, it's hard to get started. You don't have customers, experience, and nobody's paying salaries. Uh, once you're established, if you make it, uh, you live on referrals. Uh, if you give great service, you get a large number of people that know about you, and it's much easier to work that way. And is there something you've done beyond being a magnet for high-producing agents to differentiate the level of service, the business model from your agency versus some that are also household names? Yes, our business model is uh, completely different. In 1973, when we started, agents split their commissions with the brokerage company 50-50. Uh, what Remax did was we said, let's create an office that's like a group of doctors, lawyers, architects that share the expenses of running the business, but keep the vast majority of the income for themselves. Therefore, they have to pay us to work for us. Uh, that eliminates the beginners and the part-timers. And so statistically, if you look at our average agent, outproduces the competition nearly three to one and has uh, probably about three times the experience. And I'm guessing that's because you decided with your wife and your leadership team that you wanted to be in a different kind of business. I mean, you wanted to be a, an attraction to serious agents as opposed to perhaps the one with a side hustle or the need for some immediate um, alternative employment. Yes, the downfall of the real estate industry, especially residential, is that there's no barrier to entry. Anybody can spend a couple months studying uh, and get a real estate license. It isn't rocket science. Uh, but the failure rate is extraordinarily high. Everybody thinks it's an easy job. You're a limo driver and you make big commissions. It is a very tough job. And so uh, probably 80% of the people that get a real estate license never renew it one time. 
Dave, maybe next to Gary Keller, you are matched with him, the most experienced person in the world to ask this next question of. What makes a great real estate agent? You know, I think uh, the quality associates have have this empathy for the customer. They don't add up the commission uh, while they're showing houses. They're thinking about what can I do to make this customer happy? And uh, I think that's what the sales process is. If all you're doing is chasing the almighty buck, people see through it. If you really care about people and you want to get the perfect place for them, it'll come through in your actions. So I, I, I think this is such a relationship business that people are willing to pay us our commission. I mean, speaking of caring about people, you've done something at Remax that our chairman at Franklin Covey did similarly. When he came to lead the organization, gosh, 30 years ago, we were cycling a lot of people in and out of our training. Very mission-driven company. But a common phrase here was butts and seats, right? And that was not at all meant to be not customer-focused, but it was a, a measurement of how many butts, sorry the phrase, is, when it's offended, bums, in seats. It's Utah, so we tend to clean things up here. And then Bob Whitman very much changed that methodology to lives changed. And he didn't mean it to be just a sugarcoating. He really wanted us to be a mission-profitable, driven company and change those measures to lives change. At Remax, you've had a similar type of view of your business from revenue to families. Talk about that and how that has built a culture you're proud of at Remax. Uh, from the first day, uh, we never said we were in the real estate business. We said we were in the real estate agent business. The agents are in the real estate business. The agents are talking one-on-one -on -one with their consumer. And so we decided we'd be the company that was the best company for an agent to work for. And we concentrated on giving the products, the service, the training, the technology that would enable good producing agents to excel uh, beyond their current productivity. It worked. Dave, I want you to think thoughtfully for a moment about one of the best business decisions you ever made. Something that if someone was listening, they could glean some insight into their medical practice or perhaps they're an artist or an entrepreneur. Does anything stand out that you say, gosh, this was something I did really smart that everybody could extrapolate some learning out of it to apply into their own entrepreneurial pursuit? Uh, that's very simple. Uh, uh, a players make you money. Uh, B players are placeholders and C players, uh, they're not engaged. And the greater emphasis you can put on A players, the more successful your company will be. The best decision I've made in 50 years, and this has nothing to do with love, is I hired the best partner I could possibly hire. She absolutely complimented me for the uh, deficiencies I had. And I was the outspoken, hard-charging salesperson that complimented her business. And so uh, I think the most important thing you do is you have to surround yourself with key people. So Dave, we hear this advice, somewhat cliche all the time, right? Hire for your weaknesses, hire to compliment your deficiencies, you know, go back multiple billions of dollars ago and, and transactions and decades. At the time, were you humble 
and self-aware enough to know that's what you were doing? Did you know I'm great at this and I'm actually not great at this and I need someone to shore that up? And comp- Would you have used those words 40 plus years ago? Uh, yes, uh, I was naive. Uh, I told her that I was going to build the largest real estate company in history. She wanted to be part of it, but that these were my strong points and these were the things that I needed somebody to partner up with me that could make up for those deficiencies. And I I knew it from the first day. Speaking of your wife, what advice would you give to leaders that might be working with their spouse or partner? Is there anything you and your wife have done well or done poorly and corrected to make that dynamic? Like my wife and I co-own a business and it's fraught with friction because I want it done a certain way and she wants to do it a different way and then we have to parent our child children and still stay in love and speak to each other the next morning. Any advice you would give on some, um, some proven experiences where you've gone through a rough patch or you just set some boundaries early on to advise other partner teams, spouse or partners, to work well together? I think when you have a great deal of trust and personal respect for the other individual that you find a way to make things work. Uh, You can argue, uh, but you don't have to be disagreeable in doing so. Mm. You both have the right to voice, this is my opinion, but you both have an obligation to listen carefully to the other opinion and try to logically work your way through, get out of the emotion and logically say, what is the proper thing to do? Uh, People that care about each other We'll find a way to make that work. Dave, I'm going to ask you to be especially vulnerable and transparent on the flip side of that previous question. Is there some major mistake, lack of judgment, impulsivity, rush to judgment that you found yourself in and you look back now and say, okay, this is a mistake I made. Here was my learning that other people could benefit from. The largest leadership mistake I've made is the fact that I was reluctant to fire people when they need to be fired. There's a common saying, the team you start with will never be the team you end with. Uh, After we'd been around 38 years, I was bragging to everyone, I've never lost an officer in my company that left me. I've had to terminate some, but none have ever left me. In reality, I was wrong. There were five or six the company had outgrown that couldn't keep up with the rest of us. And we were holding the team back because I didn't have the personal courage to face my friends and say, as much as I care about you, this doesn't work for us anymore. Dave, let's talk about the real estate market right now, right? I mean, almost indescribable the last 36 months of what's happened, the highs and the lows. Now what's going on with interest rates? Let's put aside what appears to be a banking crisis for a next question. I'm going to go there in a few moments, what's going on literally in real time this week. What are your prognostications of what the next maybe year looks like in at least the residential real estate market? I know markets are different and you can't equate what's happening in San Diego with Baltimore, but any sage wisdom you might share with us on what people should think about in terms of buying versus selling versus refinancing versus renting? What does your crystal ball say? Well, long-term, Uh, residential housing has been one of the best investments that most people make in their life. And the longer you rent, you're paying off somebody else's mortgage. Uh, You have to remember when I started REMAX, 
the interest rate was 5%. Uh, over a period of 50 years, that varied. When they tried to tame inflation in 80 and 81, interest rates for a FHA VA was 16.5%. But we still survived that. The average interest rate over 50 years is 6.8%. And so right now, that's about what the interest rate is. It's just shell shock to an entire generation who have had the 15 lowest interest rates in the United States history. Well, you're right, right? I mean, my current rate, I think, is 29 and I wouldn't even dream right now of you know getting a 6 or 7% rate, but you're right. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's actually pretty normal. Any advice you would give for maybe someone coming out of college or a first-time homeowner? There's, I mean, I've, I've, with my wife, bought and sold five or six homes in the last decade, and it can be a stressful process, right, between your mortgage qualification, your employment, your debt-to-income ratio, your credit score, all your stuff. Any, are, are there, is there a hierarchy of things to have in mind when you're buying a home? Like, what's the most important thing to think about and what's like second and third most important as you're looking in to maybe buy your first home or your second home? Most important thing is don't depend on a friend or a neighbor or some an acquaintance. Uh, this is a major investment and you've got to get the best, most trusted advisor you can. And so shop, ask people, how long have you been in the business? You can look at a 40 year old person. You don't know if they've been in the business two months or that's been 10 years. And so it's very important to select the right person that fits with you, your personality that you like and you want to work with, and then you've got to put your trust in them. Dave, you're fairly well known for being an advocate of women and people of color in the business that perhaps were traditionally segmented or relegated to more clerical roles. Talk about your passion and legacy as it relates to creating and promoting diversity in the real estate industry, not just at Remax. Well, the thing that was interesting was when I started the company, two major companies in Denver would not hire women in sales positions, yet they dominated. They had 50% of the market. Uh, it's interesting to note, I tried to recruit those men, but every one of them said, I'm already with the biggest and best company in town. If you make it work, I'll join you someday. So I built the entire company on women and multicultural individuals. And by the time that we became number one in five years, we were 70% female and multicultural. Uh, interesting to note, 200 men from the all men companies that had not joined us in five years joined my merry band of ladies who had kicked their butts. Dave, Dave tell, me, tell me about culture. What do you do? I mean, this company is, how, how, many, how many employees, associates do you have worldwide? 145,000 sales associates. I mean, it's just mind boggling. You have 145,000 ambassadors for the Remax brand, a company that you founded with your wife, how many decades ago? Uh, 50 years ago. How, how, how do you keep the vision, the culture, beyond processes and systems and leaders. Maybe that's the key. Maybe the key is process, systems, and leaders. How do you keep your, your finger on the pulse? You're a public company now. As the, you know, as the chairman of the firm, how do you affect change and make sure that what's happening 
is what you want to reflect both your vision and your legacy. 150,000 people is a lot of people. You have to stay engaged. Um, I knew as I was aging that I was bringing team members along that were faster, smarter, younger, <clears throat> and I was not afraid to hand the mantle of CEO position or anything else over to a younger person. Uh, but I stayed engaged. Gail did. We attend all the conventions. We speak all the time. Uh, we still, even though theoretically we're semi-retired, we travel for Remax about 80 days a year. So we're in the field. We continue our relationships that we've built over 50 years. So that makes all the difference in the world when the people still see the founders involved. That's not necessarily a CEO, but terribly involved because they're our passion. David, I'd like to take a moment and shine a light on the philanthropy that you and your wife are so heavily invested and dedicated in. It seems like a very inspiring formula. Every week, I spotlight a new C-level leader on this podcast, and it's remarkable how many of them at your crescendo in life, at your success, are passionate about divesting themselves of dollars to solve problems, change lives, empower people. Speak for a few minutes around your and Gail's philanthropy. When you're very young and you're building your business, the finances usually aren't very good. And so you have more time than money. Um, once you achieve success, you hire better people. <laughs> they can run the business better than you can. It gives you time to think. And you start looking at the rest of the world differently. And it all comes down to after you have so many toys, after you have so many stakes, after you have so many houses, what else do you spend money on? And in reality, money is the freedom to reach out and give somebody a hand up. And there's lots of people that need that. I, I don't care about people that are just lazy and they want to live off the dole. That's tough. But somebody that wants to make something of themselves, wants to go to college, wants a scholarship, wants to put in the time, they're worthwhile, and it's worth helping them, and perhaps they will help the next person up. Let's pivot back to what's going on in the U.S. banking industry right now. Uh, we're taping this on a Monday morning. Your interview is going to release in the next week or so. Just last night, First Republic Bank has been um, sold by the U.S. government to um, Chase. We've seen three major regional banks fail in the last 30 days it makes you wonder, as an average depositor, what the heck's happening? And are, are the government controls in place as are appropriate to make sure that these banks are investing properly? Is it their risk in U.S. bonds? I mean, you know, there's lots of different opinions. Some are politically driven. As a, as a voter, as a citizen, as a patriot, as a veteran, as an entrepreneur, philanthropist, a father and grandfather, as an employer... How concerned are you about what's going on with the U.S. banking situation? Actually, I'm not concerned at all. Uh, all three banks are kind of a unique situation. Uh, they were throwing their money around like a bunch of drunken sailors. Uh, they didn't have right banking oversight. Uh, they were giving out very, very low mortgages as long as you kept huge deposits with them. And so they were relying quite heavily on extremely wealthy people, once a, a, a run starts on a bank and people have the ability with a punch of a button 
and they can move $10 million and say, I'm getting out of here, I'll go someplace else. That's what causes the run. The typical person isn't running down to the local bank and saying, I want to take my money out and put it in my, my, under my mattress or something. And so I think there are three isolated cases. Most people uh, are covered by FDIC. Most people don't have 10 or 20 or 30 million in one bank. And so we're in good shape. Dave, as you look back, what's your legacy going to be? Well, <clears throat> I guess I really hope, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when I was young, uh, some friends gave me a T-shirt. It says, he who has the most toys wins. And when I was middle-aged, my friends gave me a T-shirt and said, uh, he who has the most memories wins. And as I aged, different friends gave me a new T-shirt and it said, he who dies uh, with the most impact wins. And I feel the impact of philanthropy, for instance, is scholarships, the ability to help the next person along. But your impact as a leader is not that you help people make money. It's did you lead? Uh, did they adapt the uh, concepts you believe in? Truth, justice, are you fair to everybody? Uh, people mimic and they mimic their leaders. That's, that's as easy as I can say it. I'd like to think that I've led in such a, a way that other people say, I'd like to lead like that individual. Beautifully said. Dave, do you have grandkids? No, I don't. I've got four wonderful children. Uh, they're now in their 50s. And so the grandchildren aren't there, but uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Gail and I have adopted almost to uh, grandchildren of a lot of our officers and sure. friends that we've been in uh, love with for years. Yeah. And so we've watched them have babies growing up and kids going through college. So we kind of figure that we're kind of grandparents to all of them. I hear that. Here's the reason I ask. I was going to use grandkids as an example, but the, the, the situation can change. As you look at the younger generation, uh, perhaps speak to my three sons. My wife and I have three young boys, eight, 10, and 12. I want you to fast forward five, six, seven years. And they're coming to Remax because they're looking for a job. Perhaps it's as an agent, it's an office manager, whatever it is. Beyond the technical skills of knowing Excel and PowerPoint and whatever it is the technical skills are they need to know. Software, what kind of skills do you want my three sons to master and learn in order to be hired inside your organization? I could care less what college somebody graduated from or even if they did graduate. I could care less what their grades were. I wanna know what kind of a human being are they? Are they gregarious? Are they outgoing? Are they friendly? Are they service oriented? Do they have a great work ethic? If you give me somebody with those characteristics, I can teach them skills. Can you teach empathy, energy, drive, passion, creativity, perseverance, dogged determinism? Are these things that you can teach someone or are these things that people either they have or they don't have based on their DNA or socioeconomic upbringing? Um. It's based on the people that surround you. Yeah. Uh, Jim Rohn, philosopher, said, 
uh, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I think that's very, very apparent. Uh, if you're running around with the wrong crowd, you're coming up the wrong way. If you run around with other people that are birds of a feather, they're trying to get good grades, they've got a part-time job, they try to get back to their community, you're gonna act just like those people. Dave, before your creator takes you, uh, decades and decades from now, what do you hope to accomplish still? What's, le what's next, what's left on your list of impact? Hmm. I am still heavily engaged in the business community. Uh, I have a hedge fund, family office, if you will. Uh, we recently bought a uh, submarine uh, sub sandwich place. They've got 135 regional outlets. Uh, we'll make them uh, nationwide within a year. Uh, the, the thrill of the game, uh, the thrill of taking people who have some skill and adding to it the capital and the leadership that's necessary to show them how to scale up and be a thousand units. That's the thrill of a lifetime. Dave, this is a good platform. There's a few people watching, listening to this. Can you share more about who doesn't want a good sub shop in their town? Can you, can you riff on that a little more? There's a company called uh, Port of Subs, uh, really good high quality food. The owner and founder is my age, but ready to retire. He kept it small intentionally. He wanted a regional company where he knew every single person. Wow. But he also wanted his legacy to be that he started something that was much larger. And of course, I brought the capital and we brought the experience opening over 8,000 offices in Remax. And so uh, that gives us the opportunity to go to a lot of his people who all along wanted to open a second, a third, a fifth sub shop and they couldn't underneath this system. And so we're giving them that freedom. We're trying to show them, hey, there's more to life than just having one uh, sandwich shop. There's more to life than having just one real estate company. Uh, dream big. Dave Linegar, you are the big dreamer, visionary co-founder of Remax with your wife, Gail. You're a class act. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing your business lessons and insights with us. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.